Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted October 27, 2017, we feature another major story in the new WPJ Fall issue, Games the Gaming Industry Plays, the Dark Underside of International Lottery Giants. We'll also spotlight other top stories in that new issue, Coverline Constructing Family, But first, some timely insights from global affairs analyst and author Michael Moran, head of Transformative.io, risk and geostrategy consultants, and a visiting fellow at the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Thanks, David. Policy used to be something everyone understood as necessary to make a society and a nation-state function. Poor policy causes dysfunction. Think wage and price controls in the 1970s, or attacking Iraq to spread democracy across the Middle East. The isolationist, protectionist policies that the U.S. adopted after World War I are another case in point. Good policy, of course, has the opposite effect. The far-sighted treatment of Germany and Japan after World War II turned militarist nations into stalwarts of democracy. Reagan's willingness to take risks on Gorbachev's reforms ultimately ended the Cold War. But policy today is under sustained and damaging attack. It's no coincidence that three of the Republicans most disgusted with the current U.S. administration all sit on the policy-focused Senate Foreign Relations Committee. John McCain and Bob Corker have sophisticated, if not always nuanced, views on how to handle questions like North Korea, Iran, and U.S. relations with Latin America. But as another committee member, Arizona Republican Jeff Flake, put it on Tuesday, I must say that we have fooled ourselves for long enough that a pivot to governing is right around the corner, a return to civility and stability right behind it. Some of this has to do with the president's rhetoric, of course, but it's also a reference to the lack of policy intelligence in high places. Speak softly and carry a big stick, Teddy Roosevelt's famous mantra, has become tweet roughly and act like a big dick. If it brought results, perhaps we could rest easy, but it's not the case. Trump, it was said by some, would come in and cut deals with China on trade by, say, dangling Taiwan's democracy as a prize. He'd force Mexico to pay for a border wall, and in the grandest of all the grand illusory bargains, He would use his strangely symbiotic relationship with Vlad Putin to bring an end to Syria's war in exchange for, say, a lifting of Ukraine-related sanctions. As usual, these grand bargains were really just grand illusions. China has gained in global stature and righted its economy over the past year with no concessions to America. Mexico has no intention of paying for a wall, and while it might suffer if NAFTA dies, it knows the U.S., its workers and consumers will suffer too. And if Syria's war winds down soon, it won't be because of any deal struck by Washington and Moscow. In fact, the Trump administration has no discernible foreign policy except for a plan to unpick the achievements of every president since Franklin Roosevelt died in 1944. And it's not just Obama's Cuba initiative or the Iran nuclear deal. He's undermining the Truman Doctrine, Eisenhower's Korean detente, nuclear treaties inked by Nixon, Reagan, and both Bushes and Clinton, and trade accords negotiated by administrations of both parties since the 1960s. Former President George W. Bush tried to be optimistic about all this in a speech in New York last week. Self-correction, he said, is the secret strength of freedom. Perhaps the former president is right about that, but the longer we wait, the harder that correction will get. For World Policy On Air, I'm Michael Moran. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. 
GTEC bought out International Game Technology for $6.4 billion. As part of the deal, it's also moving its corporate headquarters out of Providence to London. The downtown building, by the way, along with the other offices in Rome and Vegas, will become operating headquarters. A spokesperson tells us that these changes will not result in any job losses in Rhode Island. Maybe no job losses in Rhode Island, as Providence TV station WPRI reported two years ago, but a tremendous loss in government revenues through the corporate ploy known as inversion, with GTEC taking the IGT name and taking both corporate headquarters from high-tax-rate nations Italy and the U.S. to relatively low U.K. rates. And that's only one of the games that international lottery titans like IGT play, not all of them even that legal, with much of the cash coming from the poorest players. The dark underbelly of the global lottery industry, now being explored by a consortium of independent journalists, is featured in the new fall issue of World Policy Journal. An overview headlined The Global Gamble was written by one of those involved, Jeff Kelly Lowenstein, an assistant professor of multimedia journalism at Michigan's Grand Valley State University, and we spoke about it recently for this podcast. Professor Kelly Lowenstein, welcome. Appreciate the opportunity to talk about the work. Thank you for having me. Well, good. First, tell us how this multi-party project came to be, what groups are participating, and who's funding? Not a, a lucky lottery winner among you, I suppose. <laughs> no, 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 lock, no lucky lottery winners amongst us, but it's a group of us that met last year, uh, David, at the African Investigative Journalism Conference, an annual conference in uh, South Africa, and we came together and said that there had been a lot of really fine work done on individual lotteries, uh, state or national lotteries, but what we wanted to do was to expose and write about the global system, the, the companies behind it, the trade association that they've developed, the, the, some of the financial maneuvers that you were alluding to in your opening. And so uh, it, what was exciting for us about the project was that it combined uh, me being kind of a, uh, an academic and uh, active journalist. We worked with students. We had freelance journalists. We had nonprofit journalists. We had folks at for-profit outfits. And we also worked with the civic tech organization. So it was a really neat combination of groups from Africa, Europe, and the United States. And we got support from the Fund for Investigative Journalism, who gave us some very significant backing in terms of being able to carry out the project. And also uh, some groups in Africa, Trust Africa in particular, really helped our project. Well, now give us a basic understanding of how lottery companies work. Well, it, it, the contracts can be structured different ways, but generally uh, governments pay, for example, an IGT for the equipment and services. That's generally um, the way that they get paid. But in some instances, for example, in Illinois, uh, the formerly uh, IG Tech, which is the former name of IGT, as you mentioned, and Scientific Games, another major, major lottery company, they essentially formed a third company uh, called Northstar, and that company got the contract to privatize. It was the first lottery in the United States to privatize daily lottery operations. So in that case, the contract was for running all of the operations, not just the equipment and services. So there's, there's some range, and sometimes there's incentives depending on how many sales there are and that kind of thing. But those are, those are generally the two ways. How large is the lottery industry worldwide, the amount of money spent on tickets, uh, the profits for the gaming companies? 
the the global lottery industry is enormous. It, it, according to uh, a global lottery data compendium in 2015 and the year before 2014, revenues reached almost 300 billion dollars. Uh, so that 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 year that was more than the gross domestic product of more than 150 countries. So it's just a massive massive industry. In terms of the profits, that can be a little. We'll probably get into that in a little bit, but that can be a little bit more tricky to discern in part because of some of the financial maneuvers that, that the companies make. But certainly IGT, in terms of revenue, they bring in over $6 billion a year. So that gives you kind of a sense of the scale of some of the major players in the industry. Uh, say a little bit more about the use of inversion tactics that we mentioned at the start and the offshoring of profits that keep them from being taxed by governments whose people are buying the lottery tickets. What's a, what's a fair estimate of the amount of tax being avoided worldwide? Well, uh, Khadija Sharif, who's, who's affiliated with World Policy Journal, and, and we're really grateful to World Policy Journal because uh, Chris Shea, who was the editor at the, at the time, uh, and Yaffa Frederick, they really committed first to the project. So Khadija did a very strong analysis of IGT's finances using public documents and found two major uh, mechanisms to avoid taxes. One, as you mentioned, was moving the headquarters during the merger from uh, Italy and the United States to Britain, even though most of the activity actually happened in the United States. That's one way. And then the second way was then having offshore accounts, which through, through a device called uh, passive earnings essentially allowed uh, hundreds of millions of other dollars to be shielded. So together, the, the combined price tag that she came up with with her analysis was between $600 million and $700 million that really could have very reasonably be paid to Italian and American tax authorities that were not. Uh, as large as the whole pie may be, you found it being sliced up by a relatively small number of gaming giants. How many and operating in how many countries? Well, there, 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 we found that there were eight major companies that helped fund at, at heavy levels, at the highest levels, uh, the World Lottery Association, which is kind of this nonprofit lobbying group for the industry based in uh, Basel, Switzerland. And so those eight companies... Uh, have tens of thousands of employees all over the world, and a company like IGT, for instance, is in as many as 100 different countries. So for us, when, when we were getting together last year, like I was mentioning earlier, that, that was very interesting because it suggested that this ordinary activity that's very thoroughly integrated into daily life, there's actually a system behind it. There's kind of an architecture, and there's relatively few players having a highly influential role in that daily experience for so many people around the world. Well, say more about this World Lottery Association. What role does it play? Well, the World Lottery Association is based in, in, in Switzerland, and as I mentioned, it's a nonprofit lobbying group. It really wants to uh, advance the members' interests. It, it really wants to have uh, lotteries kind of have the monopoly on state-sponsored gambling. They also talk a lot about uh, their, their adherence to, to good values. They, they talk about how they want to have responsible gambling. They talk about how uh, the, the members who belong to the World Lottery Association, which is about uh, more than 90% of revenue uh, for the year 2014, came from 
WLA members uh, that they want the, that a high percentage of that money to go to good causes. So they talk about espousing really positive values and kind of being the positive face of the industry, yet at the same time, uh, they, they regularly convene meetings, uh, conferences on regional and every other year on, on international basis to get together the, the industry's leaders to try and plan how they can get more and more money out of the world's lottery players who study after study has shown disproportionately tend to be poor folks. Well, you, you say the data suggests the lotteries are really a regressive tax on the poorest. Is that because governments involved keep a share of each ticket sale or actually tax the sale of tickets? Well, they, they, the governments do tax uh, winnings, um, so that, that's one part of it. But basically, the studies that have been done, and, and, and we, where there are academic studies, peer-reviewed studies in the United States, in Europe, uh, in Africa, and basically what, what they talk about is that poor folks tend to uh, spend a disproportionate, a higher percentage of their income on lottery tickets. And in fact, uh, the, the second survey and, and study that we saw in South Africa had, had in very detailed uh, items about the kind of household necessities that poor folks were more likely to forego in order to buy lottery tickets. So that's, that's kind of the data that we're, we're, we're looking at. The other thing that we did uh, in a couple of different places before this project was we found that it's not only that poor folks tend to spend more, but that in Chicago we found, in, in New Zealand, and uh, kind of anecdotally in, in some other countries, that neighborhoods where poor folks live, often poor folks of color, tend to have many, many more places to buy lottery tickets. So it's not only that they spend more, but there's sort of an opportunity surrounding people in a, in a sense of, hey, there's an awful lot of places to buy. Maybe I should take my chances here. Uh, not to denigrate the, these findings, but I mean, it's not that the, the governments are getting uh, more taxes from these poor people. I mean, this is the same thing that, that poor people spend more money on junk food than on, on, on nutritious food. It's a, it's a, it's a uh, what should we say, it's an imposition on their budgets, but it's not a tax as we understand it that the, that the government is, uh, is imposing. That, that's true, and I appreciate uh, your, your raising that. It's, it's not a formal... Uh, tax. There, there are some uh, standards that different lottery industries have, have put out about here's about how many residents there should be for a place to, to buy uh, a lottery ticket, say 800 residents per lottery outlet. In some neighborhoods, it's, it's far, far lower than that. But no, it's, 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 not a, it's not a formal tax. But what I would say is that what, what a lot of these academic studies have found is that in, in fact, it, is, it does function in a regressive way, very specifically because the money that lotteries accumulate, a certain percentage of that goes towards some public benefit. So in, in the United States, a lot of it's about education. Uh, in, in South Africa, for instance, there's talk about going to, to uh, non, nonprofit organizations, arts organizations, sports, and so on. So basically using a voluntary mechanism which appears more often in poor communities, often poor communities of color, and for which poor folks tend to play more, to your point, voluntarily, but that does in fact function as a regressive tax. 
I see. Okay, well, the WOLA also says member lotteries contribute the majority of their net revenues to good causes, but you found a case involving the Illinois State Lottery that raised some official questions. Say more about that case. Yeah, that, that was very interesting. We, what we did was we, we looked at the Illinois Lottery and found that uh, in, in the 1980s, about 40 cents on the dollar went to the General Fund of Education, which is the, the central good cause that the Illinois State Lottery donates to. And then we got 30 years' worth of data, David, and what we found was a steady decline in the percentage that went from the lottery to public education to the point where in 2009 the state legislator actually capped uh, the amount that could be given uh, from the lottery to education and the percentage was it was in the 20s uh, about 28 25 one year so there was actually a steady decrease even though the lottery over and over again was touting how much money went to public education so there were campaigns like $17 billion to play the lottery, and that wasn't you were going to win $17 billion. It was saying that there were $17 billion that had gone to public education. So they were promoting their donations from uh, the lottery to public education, even though the actual percentage went down and down and down. When you say there were official questions about this, what did the, uh, the lottery folks say about the, the declining amount that they were giving to this good cause that they so touted? Well, what the, what it was it was very interesting. There was a, there was a kind of a lottery oversight board called the Lottery Control Board, and in, in, in the minutes of one of uh, those meetings, we, we noticed that question being raised by one of the board members to the then director Michael Jones, who uh, was uh, the director also in the, in the 80s, and his answer basically was, "Well, the percentage went down because we wanted to increase the percentage prize payout." so that we would get more winners, so basically so that we would get more money. So that, that was the response of the motivation, that it was a decision consciously to take down the percentage that went to, to the good causes on the idea of, well, let's give more to the players so that then they'll play more and we'll get more money from them. One of your investigators in South Africa also found some questionable lottery grants to a single private school versus local public schools. Tell us about that. Yeah, Ray, Ray Joseph did a terrific job. Basically, the, the team in South Africa, which in, included uh, Khadija Sharif, Ray Joseph, Roxanne Joseph, and, and Open Up, which is a civic tech organization, what they did was they pulled 15 years' worth of data from annual reports. They scraped them, and they built a searchable tool so that anybody who wants to can go and find all the donations that the lottery has made two different organizations. So Ray used that data and found that one of the highest donations in the entire 15-year period was to a private school in a very poor area of South Africa uh, where they got one year more than $4 million. And this is compared, this is like 40 times higher than what many other schools get. So he, he started to dig into that. It was a school that only had about 175 students, uh, the, the, some reporters went to the site, found that there really wasn't that much going on there. And so uh, they're still working the story, but what's emerged so far is that the school, which was run by a guy who had a series of failed businesses, was essentially used as a conduit for some different type of work, building boreholes in the ground. So it, it just 
really brought to light that there's a lot of questions both about the recipients and the distribution process in South Africa. And what we're excited about with the project is that the, the, the process for making the tools and the code open up is, is open to sharing that so that that kind of analysis can be done not just in South Africa, but in other countries throughout the world. But staying in South Africa, uh, too, you discovered a disproportionate amount of lottery funds going to sports organizations, in particular the South African Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee, uh, which paid for a delegation of parliament members, but not the necessary expenses of all actual Olympic contenders. Yeah, the, 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 the SASCOC, which is the name of the Olympic Committee in South Africa, has been heavily criticized for sending kind of the big wigs and the fat cats first class to Olympic and sporting events, while the very athletes who qualify themselves have to crowdfund uh, to get to those same, those same competitions that their hard work has led to their being able to attend. So that's been heavily criticized and brought out, but what uh, Ray and the other folks revealed in their reporting was that the lottery is the largest single contributor to this regime. And so that, that raises a lot of questions, again, about what, what the process is by which these, uh, these grants are dispersed, who receives them, and then it, the fairness and, and kind of are people, when they're buying a ticket, they want to win, of course, but they think they're contributing to some good cause. Is that, in fact, really happening? Well, I guess it should be no surprise, given the favoritism shown for members, that when this issue was raised in Parliament, not much happened. That's true. Yeah, it's, it's been raised a couple different times, and uh, again, Ray and, and the folks over there did some good digging into parliamentary records, saw that the issue was raised. It was, it was raised as a strong point of criticism, but thus far, there has not really been any meaningful action on some of those complaints. Staying in South Africa, one more question. Uh, you say there's criticism of a plan to shift lottery funds in South Africa to poverty alleviation from the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Uh, what's wrong with putting people over pets and other animals? Well, that, that's a very reasonable question. And, and what, uh, th this was something that the folks at uh, ENCA, which is a 24-hour news station in South Africa and one of our partners, that they, they started digging into. And what they found is that, in fact, uh, many of the, much of the funding for, from the South African SPCA doesn't just go to rescuing cats and, you know, getting people out of, you know, getting animals out of dangerous situations, but uh, in many, many people in South Africa, particularly in the rural areas, rely on uh, animals, uh, mules and, and donkeys and things like that, cows, to help, and so the SPCA is very involved in that kind of work as well. So, in fact, those those uh, animals that help support people's livings are, in fact, part of poverty alleviation. And 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 more generally, the SPCA is is seen as a very well-run organization in South Africa. They they have a lot of challenges with political corruption and other other things. So, this particular uh, uh, agency and institution organization getting their funding cut, there, there's been some criticism of that. In Mali, there's reporting about another questionable use of lottery funds. Yeah, David Dembele uh, did, did terrific work in Mali, and, and what he found is that uh, rather than going to the good causes, 
in in that country that in fact uh, the 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 money has been going to fund lavish parties held by the ruling political party in power. So uh, again, rather than say going to the SPCA in in Mali or the Olympic Committee or schools or whatever it is, uh, his story opens with descriptions of uh, caviar and champagne and so on, funded by the lottery, paid for disproportionately, he found anecdotally but not sort of uh, quantitatively uh, paid for disproportionately by poor folks. In the U.S., there's another kind of controversy over actual fraud and high-frequency repeat lottery winners. Tell us what you found and where. Yeah, this, this part of the project built on uh, some excellent reporting that Lawrence Maurer, a reporter from the Palm Beach Post, had done. And he got 20 years' worth of lottery winners' data uh, back in 2014 and found that there were people winning the lottery hundreds and hundreds of times, about 250 times uh, for the top. So he looked into it, and reporters in about a dozen states uh, replicated that analysis. So I was teaching last semester at Columbia University, and so we got data for New Jersey, New York, and Connecticut. A colleague in Pennsylvania got data for Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Ohio. So at that point we said, let's just take this analysis national. Let's see how widespread uh, this pattern of repeat winning at just incredibly low odds, uh, almost hard to kind of fathom how low these odds are. Let's see how widespread it is. So we wrote Freedom of Information Act requests to every lottery in the country. We got data from 36 out of 45 lotteries, about 11 million records. We also did a survey of, of oversight in this area. And so what we found was there were more than 1,700 people throughout the country, David, who won at least 50 times and a minimum of $600. And so that, that was the, the bottom level, at least 50 times, but in particular in Massachusetts, Massachusetts was like the epicenter of frequent winning. So there, there were a number of people there. One gentleman, Clarence Jones, he won more than 7,300 times from 2011 to 2016 for about $11 million. So that in one year, that was an average of winning four times a day. So just really almost, you know, almost impossible to, to, to pull off. And so uh, what was exciting about that part of the project is we, we put it out kind of on a, on a rolling basis, but we published the story in New York, and subsequently there were two arrests for some of the abuses that had happened around it and the shutting of some stores. Massachusetts, after we presented them with their findings, they changed their policy. Connecticut is looking into changing their policy, and then after the national story and a very pointed look at retailers, uh, Pennsylvania is, uh, is talking about their Auditor General is, is looking into some things. So, so basically what we found was that people were, and this is Lawrence Maurer's research, found that people were doing uh, fraud in a number of different ways. We have to say that it's important to note that just frequent winning by itself does not mean that something untoward is happening. Uh, but what Lawrence Maurer found in his reporting was there was what was called discounting. So uh, if, I had, if I had a lottery ticket for $1,000 and I owed money in child support uh, that otherwise would get garnished by the state, I might say to you, hey, David, can you cash in my ticket? You get $100. I'll pay you $100. I'll take 900 Because it's under a certain threshold, you won't get taxed. So you get $100 and I get 900 that wouldn't happen otherwise get taken by the state. So that was one instance. Uh, we found that sometimes retailers would uh, tell 
people that they won eight dollars on a prize when really they won six hundred. Um, so that was that was another instance that that uh, previous reporting found. There was in, there were instances that Lawrence Maurer found where undocumented folks uh, went in, uh, tried to cash a ticket, and, and, and the retailer might say, "Well, we can cash it, but you know, immigration might get called." Oh no, no, that's okay. You can keep the ticket. And then we all uh, Lawrence Maurer also found instances of uh, very strong uh, possibility of money laundering. And so let's say somebody had $10 million to make clean, they play the lottery, eh, maybe you lose 30 40%, but still then you have $6 million, $6.5 million that otherwise was dirty that then is clean. So we found a variety of different ways, but we really found that there were these frequent winners happening all over the country. And in our survey of what lotteries do to look at it, we found that 10 of the 42 states that answered the survey just said, we don't look at this area at all. So if there is fraud or if there isn't, they're not looking. So that raised some really strong questions about the degree to which meaningful oversight is happening because there had been reports in Massachusetts, uh, in states across the country going back to the 90s saying, hey, this is a problem. This is something that lotteries should be looking at. So that was sort of the American portion of the global project. Where do your investigations go from here? What are some other reports we should be looking for, and in which outlets? Well, we're, we're continuing to dig in, in South Africa, and so uh, Ray Joseph has a number of different uh, outlets that he's, he's working with, Ray and Roxanne Joseph, uh, the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. They have, they have one of the stories that, that should be coming out soon. Uh, we're, we're looking at uh, some publications in Switzerland uh, to do some additional reporting on the World Lottery Association, the global context. And we're, we're talking with some folks in Massachusetts about some additional reporting there. So those are among some of the places that we're going. What's been exciting is that colleagues from other countries have also indicated that they want to join the project. So, for example, I worked with some colleagues in New Zealand in 2014, and some of that reporting influenced what we did in South Africa. They've literally been fighting for years to get the data, but I just heard from them yesterday and said, hey, when we get this data, we, we want to join and we want to be in. So we're excited to kind of continue reporting within the United States, but then other countries as well. Well, I trust you'll continue to consider the World Policy Journal and especially the, the daily 24-7 uh, blog uh, that would uh, give uh, me a crack to talk about more of these findings uh, for World Policy on Air. We, 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 would love, we would love to come back. And again, I, I really appreciate the opportunity, David. And the uh, World Policy Journal is very important for this project because, as I said, uh, you know, World Policy Journal committed first when we went for the funding for Fund for Investigative Journalism. Chris Shea and Yaffa Frederick wrote letters on, on behalf, spoke up for the project when they really didn't have that. We didn't have that much produced at that point. So, yes, yeah, so no, we'll, we'll definitely be in touch, and anything that we do, we're happy to share, and we really appreciate all the support that you guys have given to the project, and, and you're an integral part of it. So thank you very much. Well, Professor Kelly Lowenstein, thank you. I appreciate it. Look forward to continuing the conversation. Jeff Kelly Lowenstein is an assistant professor of multimedia journalism at Michigan's Grand Valley State University and a leading participant in the worldwide Gaming the Lottery investigation. Also featured in the new WPJ Fall issue, you'll find articles about defending families from terrorist recruitment, about rape and priestly power in Nicaragua, and about the Trump effect on gay rights in Liberia.
World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Interim editor Jessica Laudis, managing editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Isabel Vazquez. I'm David Alpern. 